scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. I'm reminded every week whenever we come together how great it is to be a Christian. How great it is to be a member of the body of Christ. I appreciate you. appreciate this time that we've been able to spend in worship together so far. And looking forward to a time of Bible study in Ephesians the second chapter. So if you'd like to turn there with me. We're going to be reading and studying from Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. If you'd like to turn there in your copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This morning we're beginning a new series of sermons. Last week, whenever we had the opportunity to be together, we wrapped up our series of lessons on the Beatitudes. Of Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. We wrapped up our series of lessons thinking about how we can experience true blessings. True happiness, meaning, and fulfillment in life. This morning, we're beginning a new series of sermons that's going to last over the next few weeks. A series of sermons that's going to center on the topic of grace. I'm reminded of a story about three brothers who each got their mother a Christmas present one year. The first brother got his mother a huge luxurious, fancy house to live in. The mother told the first son, you know, I I appreciate that gift. I appreciate the generosity and I appreciate the thought behind it. But the house is just too big. We can't fill all the space. It takes too much time to clean. I appreciate it, but I don't really want it. The second son, the second brother, got his mom a brand new Mercedes-Benz The son knew that the mom didn't really like to drive, so he also hired her a full-time driver. Once again, the mom appreciated the thought. She appreciated the gift, appreciated the generosity behind it, but went on to say the car is just too much. It's a gas guzzler, doesn't have all the features on it that I want it to have, and the driver, when we go out, he's really rude and pushy when he's driving me places. The third brother knew that his mother loved the Bible, so he ended up getting her a parrot. But this wasn't any normal parrot. This was a parrot who had been specially trained to be able to quote any verse from the Bible. All that you had to do was give it a book, chapter, and verse. All that you had to do was give it a scripture reference, and it would recite that verse. The mom went up to the third brother, and said, I want to thank you so much for your gift. Your brothers, they spent a lot of money on me, and they got me some pretty nice stuff, but I I didn't want all of that stuff. You got me exactly what I wanted. You hit the nail on the head. Last night, that chicken was so delicious. (laughs) A little bit of a misunderstanding there. might take a minute to set in. My question is, I wonder what Bible verse the parrot quoted when it was thrown into the frying pan. That's what... That's what I'm wondering. 
It's a misunderstanding. The mom didn't quite, misunderstand, didn't quite understand the purpose of that gift. Misunderstanding happens all the time, doesn't it? As we live our lives on a daily basis, as we interact with other people, misunderstanding happens so often. So often we misunderstand people's words. We misunderstand people's actions. We misunderstand people's intentions. What about whenever we approach the pages of Scripture? On Wednesday nights, the teen class is talking about something similar to what we're going to mention here over the next few minutes. There are a lot of words in the Bible that we use a lot. There are a lot of words throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we hear a lot, especially in sermons and Bible classes. But the question is, do we really understand what they mean? Do we really understand the message that those words are communicating to us? What about the word grace? What does the word grace mean? I think we could all agree that's a word that we use a lot. It's a word that we talk about a lot. It's a word that we hear a lot. Even sometimes parents choose to name their little girls grace. Either the first name or the middle name. Grace is so important to who we are as followers of Jesus. But what exactly does it mean? How do we oftentimes define the word grace? Oftentimes we define the word grace by memorized one-liners. Just one-line definitions like grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is favor that God extends to me that I have not earned, that I don't deserve. It's favor that He extends to me that is unmerited. Grace is the gift of God. We're going to see that in Ephesians 2 as we walk through this passage in just a second. My favorite, grace is favor bestowed whenever wrath is owed. I think those definitions are really good. I think those definitions can be really helpful when it comes to understanding and articulating the meaning of grace. But what happens when we dig a little bit deeper? What happens when we dig a little bit beyond these one-line definitions and we come face-to-face with what Scripture teaches about the topic? That's the question that I want us to reflect on and study over the next few weeks, grace is going to be the topic that we're going to talk about and study over the next few weeks. I hope that in this series of lessons, we can come to a greater understanding of what grace is and what grace means. But not just an understanding of what grace is and what grace means, but an appreciation, a thankfulness, a gratitude for God's grace and the difference that it makes in our lives. I hope that we can come to understand it. I hope that we can come to appreciate it. And I hope that this series of lessons, as we look at a number of passages, will help us to live out the biblical doctrine of grace on a daily basis. To be graceful people. To have gracious relationships. To have gracious exchanges with individuals who we meet on a daily basis. We're going to walk through a number of different passages in the New Testament that center on the idea of grace throughout this series. We're going to start with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This morning, we're going to talk about how grace saves. That's the central idea. That's the main idea of this passage. I mean, take just a second to look at the very end of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 5. What does Paul say? By grace, you have been saved. Saved. 
Look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. You find the same thing almost verbatim. By grace you have been saved. What's the central message? What's the main theme of this section of Scripture in Ephesians the second chapter? It's the fact that grace saves. For by grace you have been saved. In verse 8, like we said a minute ago, Paul calls it the gift of God. We don't deserve God's grace. We haven't earned God's grace. He has extended to us it to us like a gift. He says in verse 9, as we read in our Scripture reading, that, that grace is not a result of works so that no one may boast. I can't walk around boasting and bragging about my salvation. I can't walk around looking down on other people because of my salvation because I haven't earned it. I haven't done anything to deserve it. It is the gift of God. Grace is not really about what we do, but it's about what God has done for us. It's about the gift that God is willing to extend to us. Grace saves. In Ephesians 2, verses 1-10, through 10, I want us to ask three main questions about that this morning. Question number one, what has grace saved us from? We see in verse 5 and verse 8, by grace you've been saved. But when we look back to the past, what exactly has grace saved us from? Notice how Paul answers that question in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. First, Paul says that grace has saved us from being dead in our trespasses and sins. What does it take to be physically dead? Take that question over to James 2 and verse 26. The Bible says when the eternal soul is separated from the temporal body, that's when physical death takes place. A separation between the body and the soul. What does it take for spiritual death to take place? In a similar way, spiritual death is a separation between a person and God. When we look at Ephesians 2 and verse 1, Paul looks back at our past. He uses past verbs there to say this is where we were. He says at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of the sins that we've committed, because we had trespassed God's law, we were spiritually dead. We had nothing. Completely separated from God. No life. No hope. No meaning, no purpose, no salvation. We were dead in the trespasses and sins that we chose to walk in. That we chose to live our lives by. But then take a look at this passage and consider what grace has done. Grace has saved us from that. Grace has saved us from spiritual death. Grace has saved us from being separated from God. Number two, grace has saved us from following the course of this world. If you skip down just a little bit in the book of Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 19, Paul talks about the world. He talks about what the world looks like. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. When Paul talks about the Gentiles there, he's talking about the world. Those who are out there. Those who have never made the decision to become Christians. He says you can't do what they do. You can't live in the way that the world lives. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on to describe exactly what the world looks like. He says you can't walk or live as the Gentiles do. And here's how they walk. Here's how they live. In the futility of their minds. 
They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, at one point in our past, at one point in our lives, that's exactly where we were. Those words don't just describe the world. But at one point, those words described us. We were darkened. We were ignorant. We were futile. We were ignorant. We were calloused. Living in impurity. But then what has grace done? Grace has saved us from that. Grace has saved us from following the course of the world. Number three, grace has saved us from following after Satan. In verse 2, Satan is described in two different ways. First, he's described as the prince of the power of the air. Back in this time and in this culture, the power of the air referred to the demonic realm, the place where demons dwell. Who's Satan? He's the ruler of the demonic realm. He's the prince of the power of the air. Then you keep reading in verse 2 and you find that Satan is the spirit that is now at work in the son's of disobedience. At one point, that's exactly who we were following. Satan was the spirit at work behind our disobedience. Satan wasn't just the ruler of the demonic realm. He was the prince and the ruler of our lives. But what has grace done? Grace has stepped in and saved us from that. Number four, grace has saved us from living in the passions of our flesh. I like the phrase, we all, in chapter 2 and verse 3, don't you? There's no exemptions in that. This is not just talking about me or you. Paul's not just talking about the Ephesians. He's not just talking about himself. He says at one time in verse number 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. At one time, we weren't living in passion for God. We were living in the passions of the flesh. Whatever our bodies wanted, that's what we got. Whatever we desired, whatever kind of sinful lust we had, that's exactly what we fulfilled. Paul says that grace has saved us from that. Grace has saved us from living in the passions of our flesh. Grace has saved us from ourselves. And then number five, grace has saved us from being by nature children of wrath. When you do something over and over and over again, whenever you have a repeated action, what do you call that? You're doing that by nature. Paul says because of our repeated and habitual practice of sin, because we were practicing sin time after time after time, we became children of wrath. Individuals who deserved God's wrath, not only in this life, but also in the life that is coming because of our habitual and consistent practice of sin we deserve to spend an eternity in the devil's hell but what has grace done grace has saved us from that grace has rescued us delivered us from being by nature children of wrath isn't it amazing to look back isn't it amazing to look into our past and to consider exactly what grace has rescued us from the present, the future, the purpose, the identity from which grace has delivered us. It's amazing to think about. Here's a picture of me and my sister whenever we were a little bit younger. Don't let the smiles 
fool you. We were probably fighting just a little bit after this picture was taken. You know how siblings work, right? We adopted my sister from China whenever I was about seven years old. I remember my parents, they first came and, and told me that we were going to adopt a little girl from China. My first question was, why? Well, why do we need to do that? You, you already have me, right? But now, of course, I look at it from a different perspective. I think about not only how she's blessed my life, I think about not only how she's blessed our family, but I also think about what she was saved from. At just a few weeks old, she was left on a doorstep at an orphanage. While we spent two weeks in China, I remember there was uh, one of the officials, one of the government officials who told us that if we would not have adopted her, by the age 13, more than likely she would have been a prostitute or dead. Think about what she was saved from. A future that would have been terrible and more than likely very short-lived. And I'm not just saying that because it's my family. I know many in here have adopted. I know that you know people who have adopted. When you adopt a child, you save them from a future that's not going to be good. Well, if we think that that's something great, if we think that that's something that brings chills to us, how much more should we be thankful and appreciative of the grace of God that has saved us? That has saved us from being dead in our trespasses and sins. Saved us from following the world, following Satan, living in the passions of our flesh, being by nature children of wrath. When we look at that list, how much gratitude should we feel? When we look at that list, how thankful should we be for God and the grace that He's willing to extend to us as a gift? What has grace saved us from? Grace has saved us from a lot. But then as we continue this conversation and we take a step forward, what's available to us now because of grace? I see what grace has saved me from in the past when I step back into the past, but what about now? What am I able to access? What is available to me now as a result of God's grace? Well, Paul has something to say about that. When you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says that God's mercy is available to us because of His grace. In verse 4, Paul says that God is what? Rich in mercy. God's not poor in mercy. It's not that God just has a little bit of mercy. He has just enough to cover up the sins that we've committed, how we have went and broken our own lives. He can barely cover that up. That's not the message. God is rich in mercy. Mercy is oftentimes associated with the idea of compassion. Take a step back into verses 1-3. through three. Think about where we were at one point. God looked at our pitiful condition. God looked at our poor and lost condition. And because of His grace, gave us mercy. Because of His grace, He extended compassion to us in the horrible situation that we found ourselves in. Also, in verse 4, because of grace, we are able to experience God's love. Just like God's mercy is rich in verse 4, how is God's love described? It's described as being great. The great love with which He has loved us. God's love, the love that He has for us, is beyond our comprehension. We can't understand it. We can't grasp it. Words can't even bring into existence 
the depth and the riches and the greatness of God's love for us as His children. It makes me think about the third verse of a very old hymn called The Love of God. Take a second to, to think about these words and what they communicate to us about the great love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's powerful, isn't it? That's the kind of love, the great love, the powerful love, the eternal love that God is willing to extend to us all because of His grace. Number three, because of God's grace, we are able to participate with Christ. And Paul says that in three different ways when you begin in verse number five. First, he says, we have been made alive with Christ. Go back to Ephesians 2 and verse 1. What were we? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive with Jesus. Jesus is not dead today. If He was, according to 1 Corinthians 15, everything we're doing right now is meaningless and pointless. We know that Jesus is alive today. And just like Jesus is alive today, we have been made alive with Him. The second thing that Paul says is that we've been raised up with Jesus. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, just a few verses before this, Paul says that God, by His power, raised Jesus from the dead. Skip down to verse 5. The Bible says that we've been raised with Him. We've been raised from death to life. We've been raised from old to new. We've been raised from wrath to grace. And then the third thing, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That phrase, heavenly places, is used a number of times throughout the book of Ephesians. It refers to the spiritual realm or the spiritual dimension. Again, go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 20. The Bible says not only was Jesus raised on the third day by God's power, but He was seated, exalted at God's right hand. In a position where all creation is subjected to Him. Where He's the head over all things to His church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is speaking symbolically, of course, but this is the way we can think about it. Jesus is sitting right next to God. And according to Ephesians 2 and verse 6, we're sitting right next to Jesus. We have been seated with Him in the heavenly places. Right now, we are already reigning with Him in victory. Because of God's grace, we can participate with Jesus. We've been made alive with Jesus, raised up with Jesus, seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. And then number four, because of God's grace, we're able to experience His kindness. The Bible says in verse number 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. Just a side note here, according to verse 7, grace is not just about the here and now, it's also about the hereafter. It's not just about this age, but also the ages that are coming. But how does God extend His grace to us in verse 7? In kindness. There's so many people in the world who view God as being mean. God is sitting in heaven waiting for you to mess up. And as soon as you mess up, He's going to zap you like a bug and He's going to take great delight in that. That's not the God that we find in Scripture. 
In Scripture, we don't find a God who is mean. We find a God who is kind. A God who cares about us. A God who is concerned about us. A God who is willing to extend His kindness to us. All because of His grace. I look back and I see what grace has saved me from. And my heart is filled with gratitude. It's, it's overwhelming to think about what God has saved us from by His grace. But then we step into the present and we look forward into the future. We look forward not just to the end of our lives, but into all of an eternity. And we see what's available to us because of grace. That gratitude should continue to build. That sense of awe, that overwhelming feeling should continue to grow when we think about what we're able to experience because of the amazing grace of our God. Have you ever heard of an umbrella term? An umbrella term is a main idea that has a lot of other ideas under it. Like in this picture, the umbrella term, the main idea is fruit. And underneath fruit, you have oranges, pears, bananas, kiwis, and apples, and you could add a lot more than that. When we look at this passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1-10, through 10, grace is the main idea. Grace is the umbrella term. And because of God's grace in our lives, we're able to experience things like God's mercy, love, and kindness. We're able to participate with Christ. Made alive with Christ. Raised up with Christ. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What has grace saved us from? What's available to us now because of grace? But then question number three is equally as important. How should we respond to grace? God offers to us His grace as a gift. How should we respond to that reality? Well, first, Paul says in verse 8, we should respond to God's grace by placing our faith in Him. I want to take a second to speak to those who have maybe never made the decision to become a Christian. Maybe you've never made the decision to put on Christ in baptism and to submit your entire being to Him. You need to know that God's grace is available to you. You need to know that God wants to extend His grace to you. But that grace cannot become a reality in your life unless you respond to it. Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say that grace saves you and, and there's nothing you can do about it. You don't have any choice in it. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. If I want grace to save me from what Paul talks about in verses 1-3, through three, if I want grace to make available to me the four things we talked about in verses 4-7, through seven, I have to place my faith in Him. And that's not just saying, yeah, I believe God's there. I believe God exists, but it really doesn't make a difference in my life. No, this is saying place your faith in God, believe in God, trust in God to the point that you're willing to do whatever He's told you to do. Trust in God to the point that it is a total submission from the inside out. I want to be your person. I want to do your will on a daily basis. I think about what Jesus says in Mark 16 and verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. God offers to us His gift of grace. We respond to that grace by believing in Him, placing our trust in Him. And when we place our trust in Him, we're going to follow Him into the waters of baptism. And the result of that, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. 
God wants to extend His grace to us. God is willing to extend His grace to us. But that grace doesn't become a reality unless we respond by placing our faith and our trust in Him. But then we see this second idea in chapter 2 and verse number 10. How should we respond to God's grace? We are to live as God's workmanship. This is a message for those who are Christians. Those who have made that decision and made that commitment. Paul says grace should make a difference in your life every single day. It should make a difference in every single decision that you make. For we are God's workmanship. Because we have been saved by His grace, now we are those who God works through on a daily basis. God works through this world through our efforts, our actions, our decisions, our words, our intentions. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We said at the beginning of this lesson, good works are not how we are saved. Good works are the result of our salvation. We are not saved by good works. We are saved, and that's why we do good works. God's laid out the path for us. He says that God has laid out these good works beforehand so that we should walk in them. Our responsibility is to walk in them. Are we allowing ourselves as Christians to be God's workmanship? Are we living lives defined by good works? Are we walking down the path that God has laid out for us, allowing Him to work through us in this broken and sinful world. The main idea of this passage is I think a good start to this series of lessons about grace. Grace saves. We see the five things that grace saves us from. We see the four things that grace makes available to us. And as that sense of awe and gratitude begins to build, we see how we should respond to God's grace. We respond to His gift of grace by placing our faith in Him. We respond to God's gift of grace by living as His workmanship every single day of our lives. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Make that your story. Make that your song. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Do you need to place your faith in God this morning? Do you need to submit yourself, entire being, to God this morning? Do you need to rededicate your life to God this morning and to say, I haven't been God's workmanship, but I want to be. And I need my Christian brothers and sisters to help me. If we can help you to do any of those things, if we can pray with you or study with you or assist you in any way, then please come forward as together we stand and sing our invitation song.